Welcome back to God's Work Displayed. It's been a little while, and so <laughs> I'd planned on doing a, uh, another episode sooner, but got distracted, honestly, with other things. Uh, so I'm back again. Uh, initially, I was going to do some New Testament stuff and probably focus on James, but um, I decided to do a slight change in trajectory, and I want to talk about Acts. So... Um, and to give you a little background on why I recently got inspired is, so, and this is something you can do, um, if you have kids or just, uh, if it's just you and somebody else or whatever, it's a really simple thing to do at night. Um, at night I read, um, little, um, kids story Bible, like one story to my kids. And then I do a, a chapter or somewhere around there of the Bible each night. And I'd say it's some with them because depending on what we're reading, if it's a long chapter, I might split it up um, and and do that. So uh, what we've been doing is uh, I read a book of the Bible, then one kid gets to pick the next book of the Bible we read, and then when we finish that, the next kid picks it. And so we just recently started reading through Acts. And so um, it just struck me as I'm reading aloud to them, um, some of the things that are going on in Acts, and and that's something a lot of us I think miss. Um, most most of what the Bible is when it was originally written was written was written to be read aloud or to be spoken aloud, and so um, that's just something that uh, happens. Uh, and so when you, you when you listen to it, you catch things that you wouldn't um, necessarily catch uh, from the get go. And so that's just, um, I just encourage you to, to, to try that, to, um, to do that more frequently. And so uh, that was a long, long thing saying that we're going to focus on Acts today. Now, um, you have to be careful with Acts. And this is just a general theological exegetical discussion about Acts. And when I say exegetical, that's kind of a fancy word for saying how to correctly understand what's going on in the in the with the text um exegete the the x that part means out of so what you read out of the text um and there's some other fancy words that talk about how how you read the text so what we're doing though is we're going to look at a select section of acts okay and and acts has been historically particularly in america i think in the protestant traditions um, a book that is not understand, understood properly. And uh, that's for a host of reasons. Um, you see it in minor ways. That it's kind of like, oh, well, you know, they're, they're not really off, and it's not a big deal. And, and sometimes that's true. And then other times they take things um, horribly awry and take it to, down a trajectory that's dangerous at best. So... Um, I'm going to kind of tread in this cautiously, but I, I feel confident in the way that I'm going to take this text. Um, you might disagree with some of it, and and I'm happy to entertain your disagreements and to engage with you, and I might be wrong, and I'm okay with that. So um, we're going to get into that. Now, one of the things you need to know about the general principles of reading Acts is that Acts is a narrative, and so and it's a history, in a sense. 
So when you read a history, do you, let's say you read a history about World War II or, the, or um, about the Roman Empire or whatever historical period floats your boat, do you read it as, oh, they did this, so I must do that? No. You read it as, that's interesting. What can I learn from what they did? Now, that might may mean that, oh, I'm going to incorporate what I learned and uh, do that thing or a very similar way that they did it. And that's okay if that's an appropriate um, thing to do. But that's it's not necessarily the best choice. So um, the other way that people <clears throat> read Acts is, but unfortunately, let me, let me change gears. So, so that's one way to read it, and that's called a descriptive manner of reading. And for the most part, Acts is descriptive. However, many people read it as what we call prescriptive, so to prescribe something. So um, an example of something that you read that's prescriptive beyond a prescription, which that is too, you know, if your doctor writes a prescription for an antibiotic because you're sick and they write, um, take this medication three times a day um, for seven days at this do whatever particular dosage, that's a prescription and that's telling you what to do. Uh, in the Bible, we read prescriptive things in uh, Paul's letters are a good example of that. Um, some things you read in everyday life. Uh, manuals, how to do things. That's telling you how you need to do them, to, to do it correctly. That's prescriptive. There's not, there are some prescriptive things that you can get from Acts, but that's not the general, uh, that's not the general thing you look at. Uh, so <clears throat> that's something to keep in mind for when um, when you're when you're reading it. So we're going to get into this. So the section of Acts that we're going to be reading is Acts chapter four verses thirty two through Acts chapter five verses sixteen. And I'm not going to do just a chapter because if you don't know this historically, chapters aren't chapter breaks aren't don't exist in the Bible. They're not real. Okay, nor the verse numbers. Okay, they were came they came they were invented uh, a few hundred years ago, and they're not bad. They um, they function to help you find things in the Bible, but sometimes they throw off a proper reading of the text, and so you have to to ignore those sometimes. So that's where we're going to be, and this section is descriptive. Okay, so this is telling what they did, and what we're going to do is we're going to read it. We're going to look at the description and we're going to try to figure out what um, is occurring uh, and what we can what we can emulate, what we can um, try to uh, replicate in our our time now, and then we can also look at what we should avoid and what we can maybe modify, you know, and see how that works out. And the beauty of this, and the reason I'm doing this episode is for God's work displayed, is because I honestly believe that there is a really clear connection to what we've been talking about with 
uh, help serving and ha being served by people with severe and profound intellectual disabilities and incorporating that into our churches and how our churches should function in general, not just for people with severe and profound intellectual disabilities, but for people of all types of needs that we're going to deal with. So that's enough introduction. Um, so let's get into the text. So Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through chapter 5, uh, verse 16. And I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own. But all things were common property to them. And with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales, and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Now Joseph, a Levite of the Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned land, who owned a tract of land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge, and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. And a great fear came over all who heard of it. The young men got up and covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, Yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last, and the young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her church her husband. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with, them, with one accord in Solomon's portico. But none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to their number, to such an extent that even they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets, so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. Also the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. All right. So we're going to be working through this passage. Now, um, portions of this passage have been totally manipulated in the past um, and used for political agendas. Um, and I think you probably aware of that. So some people will say, well, by definition, the church requires socialism and requires um, that everybody give up all their personal private goods and pro property and give it away to the church. And then 
they will then make that argument for why all society should be like that. Well, people who say that, obviously, don't read very carefully, because it doesn't say that. One, it's descriptive and not prescriptive, and two, even in the description, it does not say that. So, um, so that was, each person made that decision, and they were so unified that that's why. So we see in verse 32 that um, the believers were of one heart and soul. So they viewed them, one another as family, the family of God, and they shared everything. Okay. Now, you have to realize that that's not that anomalous to some degree at that time. Uh, in the first century, when you talked about a household or a family, you were dealing with a large group of people. And many of these people who are believers either brought their whole families with them into the church. We're not going to debate the household baptism thing. Um, but they would, you know, come into that, or and they would possibly have lost their status as being family members in their biological family. But the, also, typically, when they talk about household, they were talking about a, a large extended family, not the nuclear family we have um, commonly in the United States in the past several many years. Um, People were used to living in compounds, essentially, and, and don't, don't take that as a weird way. Large blocks of housing um, where uh, grandparents, brothers, sisters, cousins, uncles, aunts, um, and there was particularities to that. But anyways, they were all in one place. So you could have a household of 50 to 100 people. No, no big deal. And they shared everything, essentially, in common. And so... What they're doing is something akin to that. It's a little more expansive in this case, but it's still um, it's still along those same lines, okay. And this was so everybody was was having their needs met. The apostles were able to continue to give testimony to declare the the message of Jesus dying and being resurrected. And the resurrection was the really crazy thing to them all. So. Um, and then in verse 34, you see that there was not a needy person among them. So all their, all the needs were met of a members, okay? Among them, this is believers only. And then those who own land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales. So what they're doing is they're choosing to sell off their land, um, and, and give that money to care for one another. Did that mean that they no longer had nowhere to live? No, they probably had excess and they were selling it because they all had to live somewhere, okay? So somebody had a home where they were living. So that's what's happening. They're not giving up everything. They're giving up extra stuff. And they would, in, in verse 35, they lay at the apostles' feet and then the apostles would give it out as needed, okay? So the apostles would then say, oh, you just gave me uh, 50 shekels. Great. Well, we're going to pass this out, but um, that family over there, whatever random name you want to give them, um, they are 
they have eight kids, whereas that other family has four kids. So we're going to give the family with eight kids a little more money than the family with four kids so that all their needs are met. Okay, The widow's not going to need as much money, but we're going to give her some money so that she is provided for. Or I would like to imagine that's how this is all going down. And then in verse 36, we see um, somebody named Joseph, who's we come to know is called Barnabas, and we see him show up later in, in this, and in some other letters too. <clears throat> and he was a son of encouragement. So there must have been he. You, this sounds like the guy. If he's nicknamed the son of encouragement, it sounds like the guy you really want to be around. Like always saying encouraging things, really lifting you up. Okay, and he owned a tract of land, and then he sold it, and he laid at the apostles' feet. So they're given an example of this is how this worked. This one guy, you know, the people who are reading this, Luke wrote this, and people know Barnabas, and they're like, oh, yeah, I remember when he did that, or did he really do that? And so they can uh, track down that information and, and confirm it. And so he sold some land he owned and then brought the money and gave it to the apostles. Okay. This also means then that potentially they are going to be... That's forcing some people to be mutually de dependent on the other members. Because, let's say he had that tract of land. Maybe he leased it out to a farmer on a regular basis. Or it was some rental properties. Or he farmed it. And then made money off the proceeds of what he grew. So, before he was radically changed by Jesus. Let's say he was moderately... Um, he was, let's say, middle class. They didn't really have that, but let's let's imagine that. And so by selling that, he is now um, lower class economically because he doesn't have that extra income coming in. So now he's dependent, mutually dependent on the other believers for some needs he might have. Not all of them. He probably continued to work, but yeah, some needs. So that's... That's what's going on, and that's that's a text that's often manipulated um, and used for political agendas. Now, I think that we're not done with the whole section, but I think that part is going to give us some clues on and some um, ideas and some, maybe some inspiration on how we should be living now. But it's not um, it's not prescriptive. It's not telling us how we have to live. It's just describing what was happening. Okay? And, and what you need to know is in verse 32, though, that they were of one heart and soul. And in order to properly understand what's going on, you have to understand that part first. That's kind of the thesis. And then it's going to say, hey, this is how they... This is how we know that there are one heart and soul. Okay? So we finished that section. That was, and then we looked at verse 37. So now we turn to chapter 5. And we have the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Okay? So this is a husband and wife. And they had some property. And they sold the property. Okay? And it says that he, the husband, Ananias, kept some of the price for himself. But the Sapphira knew everything. So they was open with his wife about everything. Um, and so let's say that he sold his property for 100 
shekels. I'm just totally making up the numbers. I have no idea what the proper, but just to make it easier. So anyways, let's say he sold it for 100 shekels and then, um, but it was a private contract that he sold it to. Sphira knew what he sold it for, but what he's doing is then he's like, well, they're not going to know. You know, I, I made a good profit off that with 100, but most people would think I'd probably sold it for 80. So I'm going to just say I sold it for 80 and keep the 20 shekels, and nobody will be the wiser, okay? Sphira's on board with that. He's talking with her about it, okay? So he brings it to the apostles, and he says, I sold my property and made $80, or 80 shekels, and here it is, all for you all. But Peter, through the power of the Holy Spirit, knew that Ananias was lying. <clears throat> okay, so what happened was that, then he said, and why would you lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back some of the price of the land? What he's saying is, you sold this property with the purpose of giving the proceeds to the church. The Holy Spirit moved you to do such, and yet, now you're trying to lie to the Holy Spirit. You've been corrupted and deceived by Satan. And you're going to keep back some of that. We know that you sold through the work of the Holy Spirit. Peter maybe knew the exact price. Well, he did know the price. He knew the price. We'll see that in Sapphira. And yet you lied. You could have sold it anyways. He He's not saying that Ananias didn't have the right to sell the property and to keep the money. But Ananias originally did it for the purpose of giving to the church. But when he saw an opportunity to make money, he chose that rather than to give to the people of God. Okay. And you see that in verse 4. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? So he's... Peter is saying, you have the right to private property. And then he says, and after it was sold, was it not under your control? So he had the right to keep the money. But instead, he wants to bring the money here and still keep aside some and lie about what he's done. Now, I think that, and I'm going to speculate here. I think that if he said, okay, I have this property, but I've got, I owe somebody money. Or, um, or, so I need to sell this property to pay off this and I'm going to have some extra. So then he can do with what he wants extra. Or he, what it is, is he's, the problem is that Ananias has a desire for, for illicit, not even illicit gain, but, um, decept, deceptive gain. In that he wants to still let everybody think in the church think that he is also giving all he can, but then holding back some. Now remember I talked about mutual dependence earlier. So Barnabas, he sold his property, and they gave us, Luke here is doing a great job at a literary level of showing us uh, a juxtaposition, right, side by side, of Barnabas, Joseph, selling his property and giving it all, and Ananias and Sapphira. So Barnabas was now going to be dependent on 
the church to also provide some of his needs. Ananias didn't want that. He wanted to be able to give to the church, get all the credit, and then still not be dependent on them. Because he didn't trust them or didn't trust the Holy Spirit to work. And so he kept some of that money. And so he attempted to deceive the Holy Spirit. And so this could not happen. They could not, and God could not allow this to happen in the early church. So he struck him down dead after Peter confronted him. So they drugged the body out. They took care of it. And it's interesting they give that detail too. Um, and then three hours later, Sapphira shows up. But she doesn't know what's happened, okay? Because they kept it under wraps. And so Peter then, and where it says such and such price, what it's happened is Luke is not telling us the price. He doesn't want us to get hung up in the details of that. Details that don't matter. Okay, the details of this, how much he sold for, how much he was giving back, do not matter. What matters is the act of selling it and hiding some of the price. And so Peter asked her, did you sell that for that price? Um, and it seems to indicate that he's telling what Ananias said was the price and not what the actual price was. And so Sapphira agrees. And so Peter says, you and your husband conspired to lie and deceive the Holy Spirit. And so um, now you're... And your husband's dead. Because we've got guys ready to drag your body out of here. And so then God killed her. And they buried her. And in verse 11, we see what happens. Great fear came over the whole church. They realized that they needed to stop. That, that do not test the Lord. Don't lie to the Lord. Don't try to deceive Him. Don't try to pull one over on Him. Because you can't. And there are great consequences for that. Okay, and it was a mercy that God actually killed them so they couldn't continue on down that road. And it was a mercy to the church. They nipped that in the bud so quickly that it couldn't develop into anything worse. And so then, as a result of that, and uh, the fear of the church, um, and anyone who heard that, that a ministry essentially opened up and that the apostles where uh, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. So not just the church, but among the people of Jerusalem. And they met at what's called Solomon's Portico. It was part, portico is part of the temple complex. So uh, people stayed away, though, it tells us in verse 13, but they were respected because they knew that they weren't going to put up with liars and deceivers, and they were holy and righteous, and they were performing miraculous deeds. So God was working in them to show, like, there's power in Jesus. There's power to change people's lives, power to make them holy and righteous, and there's power to bring about miraculous acts. And so what they were saying was not a sham. It was the real thing. And as a result, verse 14, people were added to their number, men and women, okay? And then verse 15, this is really cool. There was such a 
extent of the miraculous deeds and the great things that were occurring and the good news that was spreading around Jerusalem that the sick were brought into the streets and laid them out and caused pallets so that they were hoping that Peter would heal them with that. And that's actually a callback to a part we didn't read uh, where Peter and, and John, if I remember right, yep, Peter and John are going up into um, the port, um, the portico or in the temple for prayer and um, there was a beggar and he was begging and he looked to them um, and he was asking for money from Peter and John and uh, Peter and John looked at him and they made him look in his eyes there's something very humanizing about that and um, Peter's like I don't have any money but what I do have is the name of Jesus and I and he healed him and he healed him and so then uh, Peter and John get arrested and there's kind of this thing but so Peter becomes known as like a healer as well and um, so people are bringing their, their sick out to hopefully be healed by Peter and maybe any of the other apostles because the word is spreading that the church of God, these followers of Jesus, are caring for people. And so, um, let me see in verse 16, that's even uh, the suburbs of Jerusalem, the people in the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick and afflicted and with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. Word was getting out, okay? And if you keep reading, you're going to see that uh, <laughs> they get the authorities mad at them, okay? So lots is going on here, and it's a really crazy thing because the Holy Spirit is moving in, in a way that their hearts are being changed and miraculous signs are occurring, and people who had no hope are now given hope. So in just a second, we'll take a little break, and then we'll get into what this means for us, what, how we can apply this to our, our current situation, our current time now. Okay, so we're back. Sorry for that little delay. Um, I think with the... I know this is not related to what we've been talking about, but I just want to mention this. There's wildfires out west, and so I think there's a lot of ash in the air, that I'm, like the really tiny particulates. So I apologize. I feel like I've got a lot of allergies, too, at this time of year and with that. So if there's any um, sniffling or coughing... <laughs> I'll try to edit those out, but it may happen, and maybe too many for me to edit out totally. Um, I just wanted to give you a warning. You can definitely be praying for people in those situations. So <clears throat> we've we've gone through Acts chapter four, verse thirty-two, through Acts chapter five, verse sixteen. We've looked at what was actually happening, what was going on, kind of like what was what what was the historical situation, what was going on maybe even with the grammar, what was going on with some cultural things and all that. And so, and that's as a general rule, things you need to do when you're reading the Bible anyways. <clears throat> so now we're going to talk about application. And I think a lot of times people um, that are not geared like me, 
are more interested in application than perhaps I am. And and that's strength too. I mean, sometimes I want to be a little more academic and in my head versus um, the application. And so um, we need to actually try to tie those two together as best we can. So <clears throat> we, so I'm speaking to you um, September of 2020 in the United States. It's a very different cultural context than what we see in Jerusalem in 33 AD. Very different. And so we need to figure out what what cultural things are going in the scripture that maybe are good that we can carry over, maybe and what are not, or, or just just won't work. And then what are commands, and what are some things we can learn about what's going on, and carry them over. And then and making sure that we're very clear on um, this text being descriptive of what was happening and not prescriptive again we get back to that and that's just i've just seen that abuse so much um, in the church in america that that i i want to make that very clear but i as i mentioned earlier we kind of see what what you'd say is a thesis sentence um in verse um verses 32 and um in verse 33 to some degree so Verse 32 starts off in the congregation, those who believe were one heart and soul. I think that's the thesis. Here's what's going on. And this, as a result of this, here's what happens the rest of the text. In verse 33, we also see um, a second part of that thesis. With, and with great power, the apostles were given testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. Okay, so... When you tie those together, um, I think I think those are the, the main points of this section. Verse 32, there's a second part that I didn't read because I think that was just more of here's how we show that. So, you know, if you write in a term paper, you kind of write your thesis and then you write your evidence for that, right? So I think, the, you know, here's what I, you don't write that way, but you write it that this is the thesis, and then here are the five points of why I think this is true, and then you conclude it, right? That's the basic format of a term paper. So, same concept here going on. So we're going to focus on these these two parts of the thesis to get our application, because what we're seeing is that verse 32 and 33, there's something going on in their hearts and in their persons, the very center and essence of who they are, this, the, the early church, and then then we see what they do in response to that. So I think in that regard, there's uh, it's very clear how we need to apply that. So the congregation were who believed. So that's shorthand. They were followers of Jesus. You know, they they believed that he was fully God, fully man, that he lived a perfect, sinless life, died a death that we deserve rose from the grave three days later and has ascended to be at the right hand of God, okay? He was born a Virgin Mary, all that stuff. That's what they believe. <clears throat> and they were of one heart and soul. They have one common purpose. They were in agreement on all the most essential things. And that, my friends, is the first application. 
within our local churches, we need to be of one heart and soul. Okay, we can disagree about the color of the carpet or <clears throat> maybe even um, should we have electric guitars or acoustic guitars or should we even have guitars and we should only have pianos and organs. You know, we can have some disagreement on that. But we have to be of one heart and soul in regards to who Jesus is and what he's done, done for us. And that as a result of what he's done for us, we are of one family. We are one household of God. And so we are united, and more so than in biological um, unity. So that's the first part. So it's a big thing, and I'm not going to give you specifics because I don't know where you are, who you are, you know, and what your church's situation is. But <clears throat> you have to have one heart and soul. And so the way you get to that is to focus, laser beam focus on the gospel. To be all about the gospel. To constantly remind yourself, to remind one another of the gospel. Through songs, hymns, spiritual songs, and through the reading of the word, through scripture. That's how. All right. 33. So none of us are apostles. Let's not even get into that. Um, but they were... They had great power because they were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So... And abundant grace is upon them. So, as I said, focus on the gospel, one another, but also we have to be sharing the gospel to the watching world. So that's the other big thesis. So both are gospel-centered. Notice that. <clears throat> gospel-centered. Gospel-focused internally. Gospel-focused externally. How is it changing us? How is it changing our brothers and sisters? How is, how is it causing us to live? And then... We need to proclaim this to everyone else. So those are the two big theses here. As a result of those things, now we can think about, okay, how do we look at what they've done in these, this early church? How do we do that? How do we um, how do we apply this to now? This is a very, it's going to be some difficult things I'm going to talk about. Difficult for me. To talk about in terms of like things I'm going to be confronted with and I'm going to have to deal with my own heart, my own family, maybe even um, just history. And then there's going to be some things I'm going to push hard on, some things you're going to be uncomfortable with potentially. Okay? I'll say this I'm not socialist, I'm not saying that. Okay? I believe that the Bible is very clear that we can have private property. It's very clear in the Old Testament, it's very clear in the New Testament. Um, just a careful, not even that careful reading, just solid, you know, just a basic reading uh, it tells you that. All right, <clears throat> so verse 32, one heart and soul. So what do they do as a result of that? They shared everything, okay? <clears throat> now, part of that we talked about was some cultural stuff too. They were used to living in kind of a compound situation, large houses, that have been added on over time. We're not used to that. It. I'm not saying all for that, but there are people who to advocate for that and say, "Hey, let's kind of all, um, let's all share and buying a house and living together as families." There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, since we're not used to that, it's going to be more complicated. But 
what I would say is that I think that means that we may sometimes, this sounds crazy, need to buy bigger homes at times if and only for the specific purpose of moving other people in. Okay? So if you are, um, well, I'll take, for example, my family. My family is there's me, my wife, and my two boys. We don't need a big house. We actually need a smaller house. Uh, for my job, I do need an office space. But beyond that, we just need some bedrooms, another space for their school, and, and office space, and that's it. So if we were to buy a larger house, we would need to do it with the purpose of bringing somebody into our home. Okay? So if you're thinking, I just want to have a big house, you need to have a very specific reason why you want a big house. And it should not be to show off. It should be to care for others. So I want, so that needs to be in your mind. It also means, though, in this, so I have a small house, so that means I can't really move anyone in, at least not for, <laughs> for long, um, is that maybe because I'm not paying as large as a mortgage, then I can use some of that money to care for others. That's the other thing. So, um, that also means that when you're buying vehicles, when you're buying different things, you should think about how is this going to affect my brothers and sisters in my local church? If I'm going to buy, um, I don't know, I'm trying to think, some crazy luxury car, how is that going to benefit my brothers and sisters? Is it? If that means I have to pay an extra $300 a month on car payment, does that mean I'm taking $300 away from being able to serve brothers and sisters? Could be. It's worth thinking about. Okay, this is, like I said, I can't say explicitly what that is. However, you have a right to, to make those purchases. Okay, it's between you and the Lord. But I want you to think about your brothers and sisters. And when we eventually do talk about the one another's, uh, that's going to be one of these issues we come up. You need to prefer one another, love one another, uh, bear one another's burdens. And even though that means spiritually, it can also mean uh, material, physical things. So, um, and what we see is that in verse 34, they're selling stuff. So, if you have like excess stuff and you, why do you have it? Why do you need it for? Now, I would say that, you know, if you have, um, well, I'll give you an example. I know somebody in my church that they have a couple extra vehicles or Seems like they do. And this is not a knock on them. In fact, when people are in need, they quickly offer those vehicles up for them to use. So if there's somebody in the church that needs uh, their car's broken down, they need a car for a while, this family will oftentimes say, hey, no, just here, here you go. Use it for as long as you need it. You know, that is a beautiful thing to do, okay? There, that is a great reason to have extra vehicles. Does that make sense? <clears throat> so, and then that way, they still have their own private personal property, and that's great. It's because if they move and they take those vehicles with them, then they can serve that church, that local church there, too. Okay? So, like I said, their private property is okay. 
just we have to be thoughtful about where our money's going. So how does that play into, let's say, somebody with severe and profound intellectual disability? Well, let's say you have somebody in your family who wants to care for that person, wants that brother and sister to live with them. Well, they might that might mean that they need to buy a house. But what if they are struggling to get the funds to buy that house? Maybe, brothers and sisters, we need to contribute to helping them buy that house and paying to get that house remodeled so that that individual with a disability can get in and out safely. Okay, they're our brother and sister. Why, why shouldn't we? So yeah, yeah, the other, that family might have to buy a bigger home, but look at the beauty of what's happening. And then that allows us to come together. And if that family um, can, can serve that individual, who, that, to what, what is the watching world going to say? It's going to be a beautiful testimony of how we love one another how we put one another above ourselves, okay? Or they need a new vehicle that um, has a wheelchair lift. Hey, let's pay for that as a church. Or maybe you have your own benevolence fund, and that's something I need to look into and look at. And maybe I, in theory, like I need to set aside some more money to, to give to brothers and sisters, to help them, you know, maybe to get together and, and we buy a van or we pay for the, the van they currently own to be uh, modified so they can have the wheelchair uh, lift in there. That's something we can easily do. So those are, so those are those things. So what do we do though when, so how do we deal with this, what Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira were doing? Okay, so people are selling their stuff and giving them money, and that's great. We're only told a couple names. So my assumption is that, yeah, probably people kind of knew, but they wasn't making a big deal about it. And so when Barnabas did it, he brought it to the apostles. He didn't go in front of the church and wave his money around and say, look how much I gave. Okay, He went to the apostles gave them the money. Um... And just gave it as it is. So I think there's some private giving. I think that's relevant. Now, I'm not saying you can't give to people, but you should not be giving with the intent to be known about it. And what happens, I think, is that's why Ananias and Sapphira did what they did. They wanted to be known as people who were giving. And I'm going to tell you this now. I've seen this in churches particularly with building campaigns where they want to raise money to build things. And so you get your name on a brick or your name on something or you make sure everybody knows who's given what and how much you're given and all that kind of stuff. I think that's where there's a problem. Um, I think you're running into some, some pride issues if you do that. And so, yeah, you may have a lot of money. The Lord knows what you're doing with your money. And that's sufficient. And it needs to be sufficient. So if you're selling off things, and then you're giving a portion of it to the church, and acting as though it's everything, and you're giving it all up, but you're keeping some back, you're running the same problem Ananias and Sapphira are doing. Now if you're like, hey, I need to raise $100, and so I'm going to sell... Um, 
stuff at a yard sale, and hey, I got $105. Give $105. If that was the intent to give $100, then throw the extra five in. Why? Because your purpose of selling that was to give to the good of others. And so why would you uh, steal from others? That's essentially what's happening. Okay. Now, if your purpose is I'm going to, let's say you own a building, I'm going to sell this building so that I have funds to buy another building, then that's, that's fine too. That's not what this is talking about. And that's something you can do. Um, and that's, you know, if it's a business reason, it's a business reason. But what we're dealing with is that we need to look at what we're doing with our money and how we're using it for the benefit of our brothers and sisters. And what's happening is that because of that, what happened to Ananias and Sapphira, the believers were afraid because they recognized that God is holy and he will not tolerate liars or deceivers. But he also wants them to remember that he is the ultimate provider and that they can just trust in him and rest in him. So as a result, there's great things happening in Jerusalem. People are hearing about it. Um, the um, the people are recognizing that God is working a powerful thing within this group of people who are following Jesus. And in fact, here's the really cool thing. The church in Jerusalem is so no, so well known for caring for people, both caring for them physically, but then also healing people in a miraculous way because they were of one heart and soul and obedient to the Lord. That, as we're told, in verse 15, to, uh, of chapter 5, verse 15, to such an extent that even they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets. And they obviously were hoping that Peter would heal them or one of the apostles would miraculously heal them. But I would like to think that at the same time, other believers were coming along and sharing the good news of Jesus, as well as the apostles, and caring for those individuals that were on the cots and the pallets. And people were coming, flocking to the city to be healed and be cared for. So my question is, United States, September 2020, is the church known for that? No. We're not, we get involved too much in um, who our presidential candidate is or senatorial or any of these um, political candidates are or we pick certain hot button talk topics and rail on those constantly. People shut their ears to that. Maybe instead of, of that, <clears throat> or, or the churches spend a lot on light shows and fog machines really cool music and neglect to care for the old widow that lives in the house next to the church building who needs some companionship and people helping her with her medication and food. We probably need to simplify some things and get rid of some things. And as a result, I think of this text... I think it's very clear that we need to start reorganizing 
our finances, in our lives, in our priorities, to be of one heart and soul in the gospel. And those things that are distracting us from it can be you can be set aside and what we can do is use those funds, use that time to serve the Lord. And you may say, I got kids. Yeah. Great. Share the gospel with them. Take them with you to serve others. That's the thing I need to work on doing. Um, there's older people in my church that I definitely can serve. There's older people I know that I can serve. There are people with intellectual disabilities that I need to find and serve. You know, we're told to go in the highways and the byways and the hedges and all that and bring them in. And so that's what we need to do. <clears throat> so, yeah, rethink your housing purchases, rethink your car purchases, rethink having cable television or a big television or this or that. I'm not saying you can't have it, but think about what its purpose is for. That's something I've got to do. I've got to really struggle with and consider. So that's kind of the application of this. Don't view the, your property as absolutely yours. It's God's. Figure out how he wants you to use it. Okay? We, in a lot of ways, yeah, we own property, but in a lot of ways we don't. We are stewards of everything in our care. So ultimately, the owner is God, and we have to serve him and figure out what his desires are. So, figure out how you can serve people with intellectual disabilities. How can we provide money for their medical care? We do that. And, and this is, this is and I'll, I will get political with it. This is why I think that Social Security is terrible. And Medicaid and Medicare are terrible. Um, one, I think that they provide really poorly for people. And Social Security is a really terrible retirement thing. The church should be caring for those and not, not the government. Our job is to care for the household of faith. And then we can extend it later to those outside as we declare the gospel. So, I, I think that we need to reconsider that. Like, how is our money going? Can we move a widow into our home to care for her? So that if she doesn't need Social Security or all that kind of stuff. So I just, it's radical. It would be, um, it's totally against what the government wants. Unfortunately, my denomination isn't opposed to um, unbiblical things in that regard which I know I'm going to get in trouble for but I think that's something we need to consider I think the Amish are right on some things in terms of how they view their community and how they care for their community because I think they're emulating uh, what the early church did and they're following many commands that are found explicitly in scripture so be thinking about how you can use your money care for your brothers and sisters in Christ and declare the gospel how you can be one heart and soul with your, your brothers and sisters alright we'll go in peace and uh, yeah I'd love to hear back from any of you 
you can email me at godsworkdisplayed at gmail.com. Um, currently, the Facebook page is deactivated. Um, I've got to figure out how I can maybe reactivate just that without reactivating my um, personal one. Uh, also, if you can be praying for my book, um, so I'm in talks with a publisher, not a big name publisher, small publisher. I am waiting to see if they're going to be willing to do it. I've had one publisher get back with me before, but they wanted me to pay a lot of money for typesetting and all that kind of stuff, and I'm, I'm not going to pay money if I don't have to. And I, I, was, I felt kind of weird. I'm not going to say which publisher that was. Um, so just be praying that, that they'll get accepted, and then I can pull it off Amazon and have it, because there's, there's definitely some proofing and editing issues that need to be addressed and I apologize for anybody that's purchased that and it's been a problem for you um and so yeah just be praying for that and I'm still trying to plan out some things I think the pandemic has kind of thrown me off and so just in terms of the future of God's work displayed uh, if you can pray for that as well so um peace be with you all